Um, the scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And I'm reading from the New International Version. 1 Samuel 20, 1 to 17. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want to do, want me to do, I will do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favourably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And, David had, sorry, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Both of us feel exactly the same way about that. <laughs> Just a couple of things to note before we um, have a look at this passage. Um, Daryl and Jenny Benstead, who, who often come here, they had a little granddaughter yesterday. I don't know if they had it. Their kids had it. Her name is Imogen. Um, she's about that big. Ten pound. 
Mum and, and, and little girl apparently had a hard birth, but they're both doing well at the moment, so congratulations. She then keep them in your prayers. And Annie Yum is also the grandmother of that girl as well, so um, be praying for her. So congratulations to them. A second thing, group of people to congratulate is the Boys Brigade. Um, our Boys Brigade um, group were in the figure marching championships yesterday and they won the state championship, so they won yesterday. So congratulations to them. Um, two more notices, just quickly. One is to ask you to keep in your prayers the pastoral search panel. That's a group of people who are looking um, for a new pastor for the church. There's a group of folk and they have their first meeting this week. Um, and just keep them in your prayers as they look for someone to come and work as an associate pastor with a particular emphasis on youth. Um, Coralie Lowe, Jeff Kievers, Andrew Pierce, Alvin Tam, Vivian Chan and Sally Lur at the moment are all on that panel. So pray for them as they meet. Um, they're having their first meeting on Tuesday. And lastly, on October the 7th, we're having uh, baptisms in the service here. And I know there might be some people who have are followers of Christ. You love Jesus, but you haven't yet been obedient and been baptised. So if you're interested in doing that, then please catch up and see me at the end of the service. We've got some classes just to help prepare for that. Um, which are happening next Sunday afternoon. So if you could catch up with me at the end of this service, that would be muchly appreciated and we can get some information to you. It doesn't mean you have to be baptised on October the 7th, but it gives you the opportunity to talk through that whole issue. So um, if you catch me at the end of the service. Let me pray for those issues and then we'll have a look at the passage before us today. Lord God, you are very good and you, you're, you do gracious things to us. And I thank you for the birth of Imogen. And uh, I pray that as a family, you might just bless them as this little girl grows up. Give the parents wisdom and grace, love, compassion, firmness where necessary. Be with Daryl and Jenny. Be with Annie as they help also to guide the family. And we pray that through all of that and with our encouragement as well, Imogen might grow up to be a young woman who loves and serves you. She might be healthy and she might know your love and ours as well. Father, we thank you for the work of Girls and Boys Brigade. We thank you for the opportunity that there is to minister in the lives of these young people. We particularly thank you for the joy that the Boys Brigade had yesterday in this marching competition. We ask that it might encourage them to be further not only involved in brigades but to see your hand at work in their life. Father, we think of the baptism um, lessons that are coming up uh, next week. and We pray for those who are considering being baptised that you might just keep them in your hands, um, strengthen them, enable them to know what it is that you would have them do in their lives. We pray for those who... Um, maybe are your followers but have, haven't yet decided whether or not they should be baptised or not. We ask that you might show them, show them your scripture and help them to be obedient in this. Father, we pray for the pastoral search panel. We pray for Coralie, for Jeff, for Andrew, for Alvin, for Vivian and for Sally. We pray that as they talk with people in the congregation, as they look at what's happening in the youth area and as they set apart a process 
to search for someone who might be a pastor here at the church. We ask you give them wisdom. Help us to keep them in our prayers. And we pray already you will be moving in the hearts and minds of that person who you would have to work here, that it might be a smooth and a good process to get them here. Father, we ask all of these things. And as now we come to look at your word, we ask you might bless us. Help us to put aside all the things which might be disturbing our minds and help us to concentrate on your word. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the story that we had read to us this morning was just the first of a number of stories that come out of the chapters we're looking at today. We're looking at chapters 20, and that was about the first half, 21 and 22 today. So after that story happens, Jonathan goes and does all of that. His dad, you know, cracks a nana, um, and David has to flee. David runs off to a place he hasn't even prepared or planned his journey. He's out of food. He didn't bring his weapon, dummy. And he ends up at, at a, a place where the priests are in a place called Nob and he, um, he has to get some bread from them and he has to get Goliath's big sword because he forgot to bring his own. And then Dave runs off to Gath where Goliath is from to try and hide from Saul. Dave is not real bright. All right. So he runs off to Gath and because the people in Gath reckons this is the guy that kills Goliath, they're wanting to, to sort of hurt him. So he pretends to be a loon until he can escape. I'm just going through the story really quickly because this is kind of the condensed version all right, with a little bit of added commentary, but that's pretty much what happens. All right. He leaves Gath and then he runs and hides in a cave for a little while. When he's hiding in the cave... Other people come and sort of say, well, Dave's a good leader, so they come up to be with him and he gets the misfits from all over the country coming to say, we want you to be our leader, Dave. Saul finds out where David is and he finds out who helped him on this journey and Saul wants to kill Dave, but on the way he comes and he does something to the priests at Nob. We'll talk about that story in a minute. All right, And then... Saul, then uh, David has to go off to Moab for a little while to get someone to look after his parents. And finally, after all of that, right at the end of chapter 21, 22, um, God intervenes and says, sends a prophet to come and say to David, look, you shouldn't be here or here or here or here. Come with me over to here. That's kind of the summary of all the chapters. I was reading through all of that and saying, what is a common theme to all of this sort of stuff? And I struggled. I like reading fiction. This is not fiction. But I like reading fiction stories as well. One of the, the series of books that I've read recently, well, not recently, over the last 20 years, because Robert Jordan took a long time to finish it. It's called The Wheel of Time. It's a, a fantasy series. It hasn't finished yet. The last book comes out next year. All right? I've got it on pre-order. So it's taken forever to read, but the first book was really exciting, and even my kids read that and they enjoyed it. And the second book was okay, it was exciting too. And the third book was okay, and it was kind of exciting. By the time we got to book five, it was kind of not as exciting. And book six, seven, eight, and nine are not really exciting. 
Once I start, I have to finish it. Book 10, 11, 12 and 13 have been really good. And I'm waiting for 14. Why were these not exciting? Same author, same doing everything else. I think the reason is that here he tried what they call character development. Right? In other words, his story had spread out a lot. He had all these characters. If you're going to write 14 books, you've got to have a lot of characters, right? He kind of spread them all out and their stories have now become a little bit separated. And so he moves them all along a little bit of a step. And by the time you move this many characters along a little bit of a way, it takes that much of a book. But it's not that exciting to read. And it's really hard to get a theme for the book because you've got all these separate stories that you have to tell along the way. And in some ways, that's what I think happens in these chapters and the few that are after them. The writer, 1 Samuel, the writer of 1 Samuel, he's got this, I suppose, general theme of Saul, David. The people of Israel and the change in leadership from Samuel to Saul to David and all the things that are happening there. But there's all these characters and there's these themes that run through it and in these couple of chapters, in some ways, it's difficult to say that's the theme because he's pulling together bits and pieces as he tells the story. And what I would like to do today is to pick up on just a couple of the themes that come out woven, if you like, through these chapters and have a quick look at them and say, what do we learn from that? Well, what can we take away from that that might help us in our Christian life? So I'm just going to pick three of them. I'll probably throw in a fourth just on the side, just for fun. But let's start with the first one, Saul. One of the things that we get in these chapters, because Saul and David are all being kind of talked about at the same time, is this development in Saul's life. Because Saul came in right at the beginning, way back in Samuel, as someone who was humble, who depended on God in many ways, who who was God's choice. And throughout the book, you've seen him move further away from God and he's rejected God. And in response to that rejecting, God has rejected him. And it's interesting as you look over these three chapters that the way that Saul changes in his character development, if you like. Up until now, Saul's lost it once or twice. He's had this evil spirit, if you like. He's had depression. He's had anger. He's tried to kill Dave a couple of times by throwing a spear at him. And we see that in these chapters, he actually gets worse. When, after the story that we just, uh, the part of the passage that we read happens, this is what happens. David doesn't turn up at the feast and Saul sees the empty chair where David's supposed to be. He doesn't say anything the first day. But the second day, he says to Jonathan, where's Dave? And Jonathan says, well, I told him he could go home and share the feast with his family. You wouldn't mind, Dad. And Dad cracks are wobbly. He really does. He says, oh, let's read it. This, I, just, I couldn't really say this any better than he does because he really just has a good go at it. Um, this is in verse um, 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. How would you like that? Don't I know you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. 
Now send someone to bring him to me and he must die. Jonathan, I thought, kind of handled this reasonably well. I would have probably lost the back at the moment, but he doesn't seem to do that. He says, why should he be put to death, Dad? You know, what's he done? But Saul, he's getting to be a habit, instead of throwing his spear at David, who he, he chucks his spear at his own son to kill him. His own son. Now, obviously Saul's not very good with a spear. <laughs> right? He chucked it twice at Dave and missed, and he throws it at Jonathan and misses as well. He was meant to kill this guy and didn't. Jonathan leaves really, really angry. The next part of the story where Saul finds out that David was helped by the priests of Nob, Saul says, bring them to me. So the priests of Nob and all their families are brought before him. And he says, why have you helped him? And the priest gives a reasonable answer. He came to me to inquire of the Lord. David came to ask me to inquire of the Lord. I helped him out. And Saul says, for helping him, you must die. And he asks his soldiers, soldiers, can you kill all these people, please? And the soldier says, duh, no, they're priests. We're not killing them. But there's this other guy called Doeg, and he's hanging around. He's actually the guy that snitched on the priest. He's the one who told Saul the priest helped David, because he was there when the priest helped David. And so Saul says, Tim, will you kill them? And the guy says, yep, I'll do it. And he lops them to pieces, 85 of them, puts them to death with the sword. And only one guy disappears. Saul has gone from being a humble guy who was searching after God. But as he's rebelled and he's rejected God, you see that he gets further and further away from God. This is now someone who... During the feast, the Bible says he sat with his back to the wall. In other words, he doesn't trust anyone. He now doesn't trust anybody. He's a person who no longer depends on God. He depends on himself. In fact, he depends on his spear. <laughs> what I think is really funny is when he's waiting to hear about the priest of Nob and where David's gone, he's sitting under a tree. And it says he's sitting under a tree holding his spear. And you think, why? You can't hit anything with it. But he's learned to depend on the things that are close to him and around him. He trusts only, if you like, I suppose, in himself. And his anger has grown out of all proportion because he's got everything out of perspective. He no longer sees things with God in the picture. And so there's this development, this theme of how Saul is changing. And I look at that and I say, well, what can we learn from that? It's not necessarily what this is teaching in terms of the writer saying, this is what we must learn. But as we look at the development there, what can we learn from the examples in the Old Testament, which is what Scripture says we're supposed to do? What can we take away from this? And I think of my own life, and I think of the times when I either do something against God or I do something against somebody else. And I don't deal with that. I no longer come in repentance. I don't admit that I've done wrong. Instead, I kind of bring things in on myself. My experience is that things get worse. Now, the scriptures teach clearly that in those situations, what we're supposed to do is to acknowledge our fault, is to recognize our sin, is to come in repentance, 
and to get things right. Because if we look through the scriptures and if we look through our own lives, when we don't do that, we end up being fairly similar to Saul. I know sometimes with my family I might have had you know, a brain freeze at some stage and misbehaved in a particular way that's not too big. But if it's not dealt with and the anger seems to grow or the distance seems to grow, sometimes after a few days you can be that angry for something that was that big. Everything just gets out of proportion. Or if you let it go for so long, they say, why are you angry? You can't remember anymore. You just know you are. Because you haven't dealt with it. We learn that from Saul. He didn't deal with it. Everything was out of perspective. Sits with his back to a wall and he blames everybody else. He's no longer just trying to get rid of David. He's killing whole families to get what he wants. To try and protect what God said you're not going to have. So let me encourage you, if you're in that situation, if you know that there's a break between you and someone else, you and your family, you and God, deal with it. Because if it, don't, if it doesn't get dealt with, it festers. It sticks around. The Bible says we need to keep short accounts with God and we must keep short accounts with our brothers and sisters around us. If you know that there's something that's between you and someone in your immediate family, your nuclear family within the community here, take the time today to deal with it. Get it right. Whether they're in fault or you're in fault, get it fixed. Because it can't fester. It will end up being like Saul. Second thing, that's, that's the Saul thing. Second thing we see from here, and it's come through a lot of Samuel, is what happens with Eli's family. Now, I always worried with this story. See what happens when Dave rocks up to Nob. What a name, right? He comes to this place, and this is a by the by, because this comes a little bit later on. Dave's a bit dumb, I've got to admit. I mean, he's a nice guy, man after God's own heart and everything else, right? He's got two days to plan to run away. He thinks he's supposed to run away. He doesn't get bread ready, doesn't put any muesli bars in his backpack. He doesn't get his weapons ready. So as soon as Jonathan says to him, yep, my dad wants to kill you, he just disappears. Without anything. So the first place he comes to is Nob and he rocks up and he says, I don't have any bread. <laughs> I'm hungry. And do you have any weapons? Someone's trying to kill me. And there's this guy who's seeing this happen. His name is Doeg. And he's the guy who later on says to Saul, yep, that guy... He helped David and he's the guy who kills this whole family. And I've, I've never liked Doeg very much. Does that make sense? He's not a nice guy, he's a snitch. And snitches are not nice people. They tell tales. And then he kills all these people and I thought, Wait, what's going on here? But then I read verse 7 of chapter 21 and this, this kind of got my mind thinking. It says this. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Now why was he detained before the Lord? What was he doing there? What kept him there? What was 
the reason why Saul's shepherd was there at that particular time. And why? Because it seems to have this idea that that God's involved in this. And we get this drawing together of this thread from Eli's life. If you remember back in Samuel chapter 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli had been condemned because he had um, he had been wicked, his sons had been wicked and he had done nothing about it. And God said to Eli at that time in verse 31 of chapter 2, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Now, the only person who escaped this slaughter was a guy by the name of Abiathar. Now, Abiathar lived right down into the time of Solomon. He lived to be an old man. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, he's talked about it. It says this, So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken to Shiloh about the house of Eli. See, Abiathar was the only one of Eli's descendants who survived. All the others were put to the sword. 1 Samuel 22 verse 20 says this, But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. See what happened? When Eli died, his sons died, his daughter-in-law died, and she had a son called Ichabod. Now one of Ichabod's brothers was alive. right? Ichabod's brother had some kids, and one of the grandsons was this Abiathar. But what Doeg did on that day was ensure that all the rest of Eli's kids were killed. And so what the writer is here doing, he's bringing to a conclusion, if you like, that judgment that God has given upon Eli. And he's putting it all together to say, what God said came true. Now does that make Doeg a good guy? No, he's still a snitch. And still killing all the priests is, is done for the wrong motivation. But as I think through this, what can we learn from it? And that is that God's word comes true. God's purposes come about. Whether through what people do sinfully in which they are held responsible or through the good and blessed things that happen, when God makes a promise, it happens. Doeg is a wicked man and he will come under judgment for the things that he did. But God's promise comes true. It reminded me of Judas. Judas is responsible for betraying God. He's responsible for, in many ways, for the death of Christ. A son of perdition, it says. And yet, through all of that, God's promised blessing comes to his people. So it's not just his judgment that is assured, but his good things 
are assured. What can we learn from that? Two things, I think. Number one, and I suppose I'm commenting on my understanding of us as a church, generally I think we're a very Bible-saturated group of people. You know the scriptures well. I've, I've been in some of the life groups and I've listened to you talk and I've watched at the youth group. You know what God says in his word. Well, I think from this passage we can take confidence that what he says will happen. Why am I passionate about the Alpha Course or evangelism or praying for the lost? Because God says something about what happens to those people who aren't followers of Jesus. And you can be assured that no matter how nicely someone behaves or what they've done in their life, if they don't know Jesus, they will be condemned. They will be cast away and cast into hell. Be certain that what God says happens. I suppose that's one side of it. We have to make certain that all the things we know God says about those who aren't his are true. But on the other hand, there's a whole lot of promises that we have as believers which should, we should also hold on to with, with great joy. Um, at Infusion on Friday night, Matt Ford spoke. And he was talking, he was answering the question that was there that is, you know, it was, I suppose, asked from a non Christian's perspective, which was, um, why should I become a Christian if, you know, if life isn't easy or if you have such just as hard a time as a Christian? He answered it really well from the scriptures. He started off by saying, the Christian life is harder than the non Christian life. Jesus promises that. He says that if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, you're going to be deviled. You're going to take up your cross daily and follow me. Yeah. But in the second half of what he talked about, he said, but know this, God has given us so much and so many promises. I'm paraphrasing because otherwise it would take a lot longer. He said, God promises that he will be with us at all times. He promises he'll give us his Holy Spirit to guide us. He promises that he'll give us the strength to go through. He promises there's a purpose. He promises it's temporary. He promises it's for our good. He promises we're surrounded by family and he went on. These are promises that we have from Scripture and yet sometimes I wonder whether or not these promises we have from God we ignore. And I wonder sometimes whether Abiathar and the family and everything else kind of thought it's in the past. But God's promises came through and the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to know that through the circumstances what God said was going to happen, happened. And I think it should encourage us. Not just God's judgment is sure, but for those who are followers of Christ, the blessings and promises that he gives to us are sure. So that's all. Eli's family. And then lastly, David. And I just want to look at two of the themes that come through about David. One of them is his kingship. Right at the beginning in the passage we read, from the way that Jonathan talked to him, Jonathan was pretty much acknowledging that Dave was going to be the next king. He said, you know, may God treat your enemies and may he kind of protect me from the way that he's treating all your enemies. I'm on your side, Dave, because I know that you're going to be the one. 
And Saul says, don't you know that if we don't kill him, he's the next king? And there's this development of this awareness, not just in that private ceremony of David's anointing, but throughout the land, that this is the person who's the next king. And you begin to see that develop. This, this king, forgetting to pack his own backpack, runs off, gets the big sword and rushes down to, Gar- to Gath. Now, that's got to be dumb, right? You all accept the fact that that's silly? He's got Goliath's sword in his back and he walks into Goliath's hometown. Well, everybody notices that David's there and they say, you know, that looks like Goliath's sword on the back of that bloke. I reckon that's Dave. And then they say to the king, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Dummy. But the servants of Achish said to him, hey, isn't that David? The king of Israel. Isn't he the one they sing about? In other words, the Philistines, have even come to appreciate and actually misrepresent and understand this person, he's the one who's the king. Dave escapes from there very quickly. He begins to drool. I was trying to work out a way that I could actually drool, but I can't do it on... You've got to kind of get the spit up in your mouth, and I wasn't going to do that because I've got a microphone here. But he begins to drool and pretend he's crazy, which is the only way he can get out of there. I mean, not only does he forget to take his stuff, the only way he can escape is to be a madman. He makes marks, he scratches on the door, he pretends he's a loon, right, just so he can escape. This is the guy who's going to be king of Israel. And he runs off then and hides in a cave. The interesting thing is he hides in the cave, the people come to acknowledge him as leader. Now, at this point in time in Israel, the only people he's got acknowledging him as leader are the people who can't pay their taxes, who have been kicked off their property, who don't like the government. So he's got all the misfits who are actually coming around and saying, will you be our king? Will you be our leader? And he begins to acknowledge that. The next story, Samuel finds out, sorry, Saul finds out where David is. And so he wants to do something. But David, on against David, David knows that his parents who have come to join him might be in danger there. So he makes an entrance into a treaty with the king of Moab. Not only has he begun to be acknowledged as king, he now starts to enter into agreements with other kings in some sort of a royal way. And then the last bit right at the end, the the prophet of Gad comes and grabs him by the ear and says, you're supposed to be down in Judah, that's where everything's going to happen. So it drags David down out of the cave off to Judah. And you get this development of David as the growing recognition of who he was. And that's one of the things that he wants to represent. But what I find fascinating is that in this story, this man after God's heart, I think, is a loser. I do. He tells fibs to find out whether Saul wants to kill him. They lie. And I don't know if that bothers you or bothers me. And then when he comes down to the priest of Nod, not only, as I said, does he forget his stuff, but he lies to the priest to get the bread and he lies to him to get the sword. All right? With all of that, that's the reason the priests are killed because this, he didn't plan ahead. And, these guys, and he says right at the end of chapter 22, it's my fault, I was there. 
I saw Doeg. I, I, I knew he was going to tell Saul, I didn't do anything. It's my fault. Your dad's dead. And then he's dumb enough to go to Gath. He has to act like a loon to escape. And then he goes and hides in a cave. And I think, a man after God's own heart. It can't be because of his brain. His life choices. So what is it? What is it that as this acknowledgement of his kingship flows that we have this recognition that this is the one that God chooses? And I suppose as I was thinking through all of that, it's interesting, there are at least five psalms that are written during this time in David's life. Let me read one of them to you, Psalm 34. This is, um, this is written when David pretended he was nuts. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have troubles but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. I read that and I think this man knew God. So how do I put those two things out? The thing is that I think David as this man who was a man after God's own heart wasn't perfect, but he was in this relationship with God. He was acknowledging God through his failures and through his difficulties. Saul is this guy who's still leaning on his spear with a back against the wall saying, I'm going to be all right, I'll kill whoever comes close. He can't use it. David in his difficulties might act wrong and he might do silly things and he might tell falsehoods. But when he thinks about his life, his response is to turn back to God. When you read some of the other Psalms, it's to acknowledge his sin. 
is to recognise his dependence upon God. And as I think about that, and what, because the people who were reading this would have known these psalms. I think one of the other things that the writer is bringing out here is that this man, through all the reality of his life, was still one with a heart after God. What can we learn from that? I think we have to learn not to be like Saul, where we allow the things to grow and we keep God out of the picture because things are just going to fester and get worse. Our life's going to go down the toilet. We're to recognise that God has, has promised to be with us. See, there's this whole relationship that God is waiting and wanting to wrap us up in. And he can be trusted. So as we go through the difficulties and the trials and the troubles of life, when we go through its joys, its ups, its downs, even when we stuff up and make the dumbest of mistakes, don't let our relationship with God be broken. Let's get close to God and we'll find that he is everything that we need. We come to him and we say we're sorry and he forgives. We come and say we need help and he gives. We come and say we need strength and he blesses. We want guidance and he gives it. It's that relationship that David had with God that made him a a man after God's own heart. Someone who was, if you like, worthy to lead the people of God. So I don't know what troubles and troubles you're going through, what difficulties, what joys. But if in those things you can remember to maintain this relationship with God, and it'll go apart and close and apart and close, but your constant desire is to be in that relationship with God, then if we can learn that from David, we will be people after God's own heart. As we put into practice the truth that we know of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we as your people not only know your word but hold firmly onto it. That we might seek to have a relationship with you, constantly trusting in your promises. Promises to forgive us when we sin, to hold us when we hurt, to guide us when we're lost, to strengthen us when we're weak, to give us words when we're stumbling, to protect us in danger, to take us through to live with you for eternity. Help us to not lose sight of those things. Help us to deal with our broken relationships, firstly with you, but with the people around us that we won't let those things fester in our lives. That we as your people might truly be people who have a heart after you. Lord God, we ask these things in the name of our Son, our Saviour, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.